So this one is going to be, I think, the most challenging of all the messages, just because uh, li literally, like, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his one and only son and, and the implications of that. So we're going to do that, and then tomorrow, uh, again, you know, only, only God satisfies, all right? So let's go through, uh, <clears throat> let's go through the passage. My, it's green. Okay. Where's the computer? That back there? Ah, ah, yes. Okay, there we go. <clears throat> Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, and God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, <clears throat> Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. <clears throat> Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, <clears throat> Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over <clears throat> and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. <clears throat> so there's so many uh, pieces of this that I, I think are, are, are legitimate questions that, you know, we should ask before we jump right in. You know, questions like, what in the world? I mean, what kind of insane God asks one of his followers to, like, sacrifice his kid? I mean, that just seems insane. So I want to just address that a little bit, you know, before we launch into, the, you know, the, kind of the main points of the passage. We have to understand that this was a pagan culture that people lived in. This is the culture they, they lived in was that you had gods that, that were worshipped that would require child sacrifice. So it was already part of that culture that, that pagan gods required that. Am, am I on? Am I on? I'm okay. Pagan gods required that in order to worship them, and that's what people did. <clears throat> Secular people offered up their kids as the way to worship these other gods. So um, 
So God asking Abraham to do this in that culture actually was not so out of, out of the norm. And so Abraham, okay, well, other gods do this, okay, but I, I'm devoted to you. I'm going to follow suit. <clears throat> so just know that. <clears throat> because if you start reading this passage from modern day, because it just sounds sick, right? It just sounds like sadistic. Like what kind of God would ask that even just as a test, right? But in that culture, it actually was decently normal. Like it, this is what pagan gods required, right? I think the other question people ask is, all right, so Abraham's Abraham, right? I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay, Oh, thank you, thank you. Like, this is kind of like, like God's all-star team, right? So what was asked of Abraham wouldn't be asked of me. This isn't normative, right? You, you're not, this stuff that we're reading about Abraham and, and how he passed all these tests and how he was like a superstar. Like, like, talk to me about Peter, you know, these other guys in the New Testament, but Abraham just seems like a heavyweight. So is this normative? Well, you have to remember, again, even in, in, in the New Testament, Abraham is quoted as the father of our faith, as an example, not just for what he did, but for us, right? So Abraham actually is a type of person that we are to say, wow, okay, this is what it means to follow God. Just so that, you know, because we, we, I mean, I think it's okay to be skeptical and say, well, okay, well, who, who the heck would ever ask that for our kids? So that doesn't apply. Or, well, that's Abraham. Or, I mean, if I was blessed like Abraham, I'd, be, I'd have that faith to almost sacrifice my kids too. Well, these people are presented as examples in the Bible to follow, that we could be like that. Okay, um, so in light of that, <clears throat> let's, um, let's kind of go at this passage. Um, this passage really talks about a test that, that Abraham has, oh, thank you. Abraham is, is given a test. That, that's what it says. And the test is this. When the commands of God seem to contradict the promises of God. That, this is a test. When we look at scripture and it says that God tested Abraham, Specifically, what, what the word is saying here, the reason it's a test, because it seems like the commands of God seem to contradict the promises of God. Let's read that. Let's read the word one more time here. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, What's the command of God in this situation? Sacrifice Isaac. It's a command. God is telling him, look, you need to sacrifice your one and only son. But the promises of God that, that Abraham received was like, you are going to be the father of all nations, and you're going to be blessed, and you're going to be a blessing to all. So you're going to, your kids, right? You're going to be father of all nations. So the promises of God is that he's going to have a lot of kids. The, pro, the, the command of God is like, I want you to kill your kid. So it's like, hello, like that seems to contradict each other, Right? If you're promising that I'll be father of all nations, the implication I'm going to have a lot of kids, now you're asking me to kill those kids that you said I'd be blessed with, right? So that's the, that's the test of God. Now, why is God <clears throat> testing Abraham in this area? Like even in the phrase here, it says that, you know, then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love. Is that really true? Was Isaac Abraham's only son? He had two sons, remember? Out of Hagar, he had Ishmael. Ishmael was really the older son, right? But Isaac was the second son. But the text says, your son, your only son. In other words, because Isaac was the legitimate one, Isaac could have been a source of worship. And he could have been treated like he was the only son, the one you love more than Ishmael. You see? So, so Ab God is laying that out there and saying, hey, 
this is a test. I know you love me, but your whole identity is wrapped up in this kid, right? Because you're the father of all nations. And you've been kind of treating him as if he's your only son, even though you have two sons. Would you lay that kid down as the way that you would love me? Now, at this point, we want to be start, start thinking about metaphorically, what is that only son syndrome that we have now? Now, it could be your actual kid. I mean, it could be. But you want to start thinking about, like, what is your only spouse? A certain possession, a certain, you know, standing we have at work? What is that one and only son that we have right now that we're caressing, that we fear losing, that, man, you, you can't take criticism about it because it's so close to you, right? You want to start thinking about that. Because as we uh, look at um, how do we pass the test of God, that's where I believe God is pointing us to. It could be a person, it could be a philosophy, it could be a position you have. And, and let the Lord work in your heart because you know what? Walking away from that retreat of having some idea what that one and only son is, it's a good thing. Because that might be the area that, that's preventing us from moving forward. That, that might be the area why we feel dry. That might be the area where we're always feeling like, you know, we're just going like this the entire time. Rather than just kind of walking with the Lord and growing strong and, and having that spiritual confidence you know what I'm saying? Like, like when bad things happen to our lives, sometimes it shakes our confidence in the Lord. But, you know, the people of faith in the, in the Old and New Testament, when bad things happen, they just kind of like bucked up and said, okay, it's good. You know, God's still here, right? So we want to build that spiritual confidence. <clears throat> so, so the principle here is sometimes God will ask us to sacrifice our most prized possession to see if we truly fear him. And this is what's happening in chapter 22. Okay, another disclaimer we have to understand this is the latter part of Abraham's life, right? If you looked at his early part, like, that's not what you want to mimic. I mean, there's some really bad moves that he makes. He lies about his wife, and, you know, he sleeps with Hagar to, to get, get a kid. So this is, a, like, you're really seeing Abraham and his A-game, all right? So if you're at a point where, like, you know, I'm not quite at my A-game, <clears throat> right, and I'm kind of in the, in the middle innings or I'm, I'm early on, like, like realistically, like, if you try to shoot for this right away, when you're just like, man, I'm just barely, like, I just love, I just started liking church. Or, you know, I just started reading the, This is just unrealistic for you to think, man, you know, I want to be able to sacrifice one my one and only. Right? Just, just keep that in mind. Um, because there's a lot of development going on here that, let's just be realistic. That's some of the things that we need to be aware of. <clears throat> so, you know, sometimes God will ask us, right, to, to test us. So, again... Uh, the highlight being, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there. And that's the, that's the request that God makes. Now, let's take a look at this. <clears throat> How do we want to pass this test, right? We all, I'm thinking in the room, hey, we're test takers, man. You know, we get a test, we want to kill it, right? I mean, we got a pretty well-educated group here. We, you know, you give me a test, if I'm prepared, I want to kill it. I don't want to get a B, I don't want to get a, a B minus, I want to kill it. So I'm thinking, man, I want to pass this test, all right? So how do we, <clears throat> how do we actually do this? And uh, several things that I want to, before we answer this question, I want, to, I, I want us to be thinking about, you know, uh, you know, take your one and only son whom you love. The way you can uncover that are things like it could be a spouse, it could be a son, it could be a daughter, uh, conditions I, I'm thinking of, things like you'd be devastated if you lost it. What's well, that thing apart from Christ that you, you say to yourself, man, I'd be devastated if I lost this. You know, I fear actually losing it now. Like my hope, my hope is like when you think of like I have hope in my life. Apart from Jesus, what's that hope? Because hope is a future thing, right? 
Like, what's that hope? That I'm going to have this good life, I have a certain security maybe, um, that, that maybe that you're, you're so talented and skilled that you, the level of control you have is very securing, right? That's your hope. Um, you know, some level of personal security, finances, you know, what you've saved up for the future, approval, highly regarded by others. So, so let's be thinking about those things because I think that's the area where uh, God would want to test us. Now, so again, we're going to jump into this, but I, I, wanna, I want us to share and, and think a little bit about uh, some, some personal things. Now, I'm just, you know, one example I want to throw out there, <clears throat> I think for me, you know, like so many people, this idea that I get to be in control of something is very much, I've, I've discovered over the years, um, one way that I get to kind of keep my prized possession in generally, right? If I get to you know, shape a certain program, or if I get to lead a church, or I get to lead my family, it's good. You, sh- you should be an influential person. But I've definitely had, you know, moments in my life where I just felt like, no, I need to control that. Like, if I don't have that, then I'm not going to feel good about being on that team. Or if I don't control that piece, then I don't want to, I don't want to be part of it, right? Kind of silly and immature about it. And so one of the ways that <clears throat> the Lord's been kind of working through me in that area is just the power of prayer. Because once you start praying, you, you really are relinquishing control. And one of the things that's really been helpful over time is like, okay, what is it that God controls, that God does, and what is it that I do, right? And so this whole idea that God converts and God transforms and really I get to set the environment, that made a lot of sense to me, right? And so <clears throat> in the past year, what's been really neat is to really think about like, how do you do ministry through prayer? Like, how do you actually do ministry alongside the Holy Spirit so that when you're going to meetings, when you're giving talks or whatever, that you really sense that God is there and that the results are up to the Lord and that you're not trying to like manipulate and manage and, and get all the pieces together so that that thing really goes well, right? <clears throat> so as an example, prayer has been that piece. So just, you know, just bear with me here. A year ago, I was asked to be the Western Regional Director for Q Place, which is a ministry. It's a nonprofit that basically starts secret sensory groups all over the state, right? So California, Nevada, Hawaii, of all places, I get to oversee that, which is like, wow, tough life, all right? So that's, I'm the Western Regional Director for that, right? And when they, when they first hired me back in May, they said, oh, by the way, there's a prayer team, and, and you need to be part of that. I said, good. No, I'd love that. That's cool. Well, it's a call-in prayer. It's like a conference call, right? So... Every Thursday from 8 to 8.45, you know, this is, this is so cool. Like, I, I, you know, I've always been part of ministries where most people are like 20-something, 30-something. At the most, like 40-something, I was always like the older guy. But I've never been part of ministry where you had people in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? And like, let alone like more Caucasians than Asians, right? So they told me, it's like, yes, you're going to love this team. And these little old ladies, all they want to do is pray. I go, are you kidding me? Like, you, I have a team like that? Yeah. They're in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. All they do is pray, and all you have to do is join that team. I said, let me get this straight. Like, they pray every Thursday from 8 to 8.45, and I just call in, like, from all over, like, California or Nevada, right? And we just pray for the ministry. Now, I'm not used to conference calls. I'm more of a one like, personal, like, touch guy. Like, like you just call, and we don't because I've never met these people, right? So I'm on the call, and then people, like, talking, and they're praying. It's like, oh, wow, this is really awkward. I just so feel so impersonal. Like I, a part of me was like, wow, is this the way white people do ministry? I, I was really, it was terrible. It was terrible. It was terrible. It's like wicked. It's like, man, this is so impersonal. I really, in the back, I'm like, man, is this the way, like, is this the way you do ministry? It's so impersonal, right? <clears throat> so, like, a couple weeks go by, 
And it's still like I'm kind of tentative about talking because I don't want to hog up the airspace. And, but nobody's doing that. They're praying over like the region. They're praying over salvation of people, right? And I'm like, like three weeks in, I said, like, wow, this is really good. I, like, it's, it's scheduled. People talk for about two or three minutes. Oh, how's it going? And then boom, people are praying, right? So I get, because I'm more of an efficiency guy, I get the you know, ideas like, okay, I don't want to just pray randomly. Like, can we have like a prayer board, right? Can we create like a Google Doc and we can put our prayers in there? They, oh, that's a great idea. Because, I mean, old school is like we just pray along to the spirit, right? I go, that's fine. But, man, I'm thinking like, you know, like two people are going to pray all these long prayers and nobody gets to pray. What if we had like prayer requests? So I start putting my appointments on this thing, right? And then they start putting their appointments. And all, these, all of a sudden, we've got like 10, 15 prayer things, right? So there's a date, there's the prayer request, and then update in progress, right? We started this like May 12th, May, last May. Well, after a year, we had over 1,000 prayer requests. 1,000 prayer requests that people put in. This is a team of like six, seven, or eight. It got to the point, you guys, like, it's like, you know what? This is so good. And then I was seeing results. I said, I'm not going to any meeting without this group praying for my meeting, right? I, I told the group, look, I, I feel spiritually naked. If you guys are not praying for this meeting, I'm meeting with the senior pastor who's this part of this mega church. And I'm the, I'm the outside guy, this vendor guy coming in and talking to about cute plays. You know how it is when you're an outside guy, Paul. It just feels like, okay, great. I love your stuff. But it hardly penetrates into the walls of a church because you're the outside guy. So I just felt handicapped. But at like three or four months in, all of a sudden, I'm making inroads. Like all of a sudden, I'm meeting with elders and senior pastors. I go, God, this is amazing. Really. And so I just kept putting my appointments on that. So this, this retreat. I mean, you guys have been prayed for, I don't know for how long, by this group. It's like they don't, they don't know you by face. They just know you as the crossway you know, retreat. And they've been praying for you. They've been praying for us, right? And over time... I just felt my need to control things, which is my prized possession, dissipate. Because I began to see God answering these prayers. Now think about this. Prayer is the greatest statement of dependence you can make. It is on the Lord. Imagine if you knew going into that week, I mean, I'm thinking we have a lot of working people, a particular presentation you have to make a special interview you have, or like really important meetings. I mean, think of the hard conversations Christians have with each other to talk about hurt feelings and how sensitive that is and the spiritual warfare that could come out of that. Like, how can you not pray about that? So I want to encourage us today that if control is one of your prized possessions, to give that to the Lord and actually proactively create something in the week where you are forced to pray for even half hour, 45 minutes. And, I, you know, I, I've shared that portion of what I just said to so many senior pastors and so many churches in the last year. I don't know how many actually take me up on it, right? But the ones that I have feel the same way I feel now. It's like, wow, I just feel covered. You know, like, not that, like, everything has been successful, but I just feel like, wow, if God wanted this thing to happen, he would have had it, made it happen. I'm not going to be disappointed that we didn't make this breakthrough because I feel like God's got it, right? And, and that's one of the things I want to share with you that coming out of this retreat, if there's certain goals that you have for the, for the church and even your personal goals, like create a weekly prayer session. And, and it doesn't have to be like, like personal presence like, because people live in different places, right? But you can do an 800 conference call and just track the results and update for over even six months. I'm telling you, you're going to be so encouraged. 
In fact, this church that interviewed me for the senior pastor position, <clears throat> we had many criteria to join us. And one of them was, if you, if I, I can't be your senior pastor if you don't have like a weekly prayer for the whole church. I, I really want it for the whole church, right? And it, you know, literally, it was like a group of like, like 80 people. And then we had a town hall meeting. And they were like, so what's it going to take for you to be our senior pastor? I said, look, this thing is so important. I did this for an entire year. Like, I don't go into any meetings without this group of people praying. And I, if I'm going to be part of this, like, I need you to be praying because this is not about my talent or your desire. It's really about what God's doing, right? And I need you to believe that. And the only way I know you're going to believe that is if you actually have a weekly prayer, right? And so they started to do this, right? So every Monday night from 7 to 7.30, they have a prayer session and, and people call in. The last one, apparently, nine people called in. Now, I said general, like, general session for the church, they interpreted that as, a, oh, no, we've been doing this for your family. Like, we've been praying, like, all the requests have been for you. And you're, I said, no, no, I want it for the whole church. And, then, and the guy who leads us, no, 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 you don't understand. That I'm like the armor bearer for the church. We've had two other senior pastors in the history of church, and we create these prayer meetings so that we protect the senior pastor and his wife and his family, and we're going to do this every Monday night for you and your family. I go, wow. I still want it to be broad, but it's, so every Monday night, that's guaranteed. Every, every Thursday from 8 to 45, there's prayer going on. And my staff meets every Tuesday, 11 to 1.30. And we pray from 11 to 12 sometimes, 11 to 11.30 at least, right? I mean, there's, there's like 10 of us. And the other day, we had, we had 40 prayer requests. It got to the point, like, we got to split this up. You four, you take 20. You, you four, you take 20. And so we did it all in half hour, Right? But, but this, see, that's what it's going to take, right? If you're really serious about impacting Orange County, impacting your marriage, like it cannot be on your own power, right? So if control is your most prized possession, and it is for me, right, you need to start thinking about how do I dismantle that so that we really glorify God through the Holy Spirit, through power of prayer, and not because you have wonderful techniques and wonderful programs, because then, then, then they get glory, right? We're wonderful leaders, and they get glory. But if you start praying... Right? I'm convinced that not only will your heart just be loosened and free, you're really going to say, wow, there's no way we could have done this. There's no way that person comes to faith without God doing this. Isn't that beautiful to be able to freely praise God and glorify God and say, wow, there's no way that could have happened without him. Versus like, wow, okay, 50% God, 50% me. Or, you know, 75, 25. Because it was like, oh, it was our talent, right? Like you want to be able to say, no, God, that was, that was you. That was like glory to God. You really want that. And I think prayer brings that about. So I just want to challenge us as we, before we dive into this other thing. That, like, man, maybe God's calling me to be part of that weekly prayer. Team. Maybe even for Pastor Paul, right, and Kate. It's like, hey, maybe you're called to protect them and love them. Because this is, this is a hard area. California is a hard area to diminish. 93% of the people in my area, they don't go to church. That, that ground is hard, man. So that's why we have to pray. And if Paul and Kate are leading this brigade, they're going to be under attack and their kids. So some of you may be called to like, you know what, I, I feel called to this. I will do it weekly. In light of eternity, right, I will go down as a group of people that pray. And I think God will look at that as a man, well done, good and faithful servant. Remember, light of eternity, right? Light of eternity, not just the next 10 years of retirement. It's like, wait a minute, in light of eternity, what if we set that up and trust it? That this is what God wants. So, a little, little uh, you know, sidebar on that. All right, so how do we pass the test of God? Um, <clears throat> we obey God's commands 
in light of his promises. And this is just so important, in light of his promises. The angel of the Lord <clears throat> called to Abraham, a heaven a second time, and says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, he actually did something, right? And have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Right? So he's obeying God in light of the promises that he will have descendants as many as sands in the seashore, as uh, stars in the sky. So he's looking at the promises, and he's obeying God in light of the promises. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. <clears throat> and by faith, oh, okay, let me, let me, let me, uh, let me go, come back here. So how do we know that Abraham did the right thing? Like, what was his mindset? I, we actually learned this in Hebrews, that he said, well, you know what? Even if Isaac, even if I slay Isaac, I trust that God could even bring back the dead, right? So we know that from Hebrews, right? By faith, <clears throat> Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. <clears throat> he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. What did he do? He acted in light of the promises that he had been told from the very beginning, right? He said his promises are true, his provision is true, his presence is true, his comfort, all these promises of God, they're true. And even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. <clears throat> so in a matter of speaking, he did receive back, uh, back him from death. Um, so, so there you have... The, uh, the framework of how this thing could work, right? So you want to begin to look at what do you know to be the promises of God? Provision, comfort, protection, right? This is all in the scriptures. It shouldn't be any surprise to you, right? Actually, I think I might have even uh, itemized these, right? Provision, <clears throat> comfort, uh, his presence, forgiveness. That's guaranteed, right? That's a promise of God. First John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, right? Right? All the navigator memorize. Remember those verses that we have to memorize when you're like, oh, wow, this remember all this stuff. Um, <clears throat> peace, joy. <clears throat> these are blessings. That, that he, he promised that you'll never be alone. I will never leave you or, or forsake you. Prosperity. We're even guaranteed that, right? His presence again, protection. So these are things that, that we are, are, are given as a promise, and sometimes... We are commanded to do things <clears throat> that seem to contradict that. Now, what do I mean by that? Sometimes, um, when you are <clears throat> commanded to be godly at work, right? This is, this is a command, right? Whatever you do, do to, do to the glory of God. That's a command, to live a godly life. The, command, the, the, provision or, or the, or the promise of God is provision. The command of God is live a godly life at work. And if you do, like if you actually don't cut corners and you don't fudge the numbers, which is what your boss wants you to do, right? You actually obey the commands of God, you could lose your job, right? If you don't work the numbers, right? Because you're, you're, let's say your boss wants you to kind of fabricate some numbers so that the budget at the end of the year looks good. But if you actually obey that command, you can get fired and now you don't have provision. So it seems like, man, dude, you're contra- I, I, I'm. this is a test, <laughs> Like, I feel like the commands of God and the provision or, or the promise of God are contradicting one another. Okay, just think in terms of uh, also, I mean, I know most of us are married, but I think, you know, in, even in that dating stage, sometimes, you know, we get in these crazy situations like, you know, God promises companionship, you know, a helpmate and all that, right? But then he also commands you to be sexually pure. But let's say one of your party members is like, hey, if you really love me, you know, you sleep with me. So now you feel like, man, if I obey that command of purity, 
I may not have a helpmate. I may not have someone that I have for the rest of my life. Man, that, that's a test. The promises of God seem to contradict the, the commands of God. So I, I think you kind of get where I'm going, right? So, <clears throat> so these situations exist probably right now. That you know God's going to provide, but in your mind's eye, right, you think you have a certain house in mind, right? A certain zip code in mind. But the command of God is very clear. It's like real religion is ministering to widows and orphans. Serve the poor. Love the homeless. It's like, wait a minute, that's, that's in a different zip code. If I obey that command, that provision I've been dreaming about, I, hey, I don't, wanna, I, want, I don't know if I want to hear that command. You see what I'm saying? So that's where the prized possession thing dynamic is. You have to begin to think, okay, wow, that's, uh, that's really challenging. Now, here's the other thing that's really cool about um, trials. There are trials that reveal your weak points, right? And that's true. It's just like it reveals where, where we're not strong, right? But then there are trials that showcase your strength, right? If you actually read 1 Peter 1, verses one, uh, 6 through 7, it actually talks about that uh, we have a faith more perishable than, like stronger than gold, right? Refined. And it actually says that sometimes God allows us to be in the fire so that people can see the steel, right? Because people can see that, wow, this is, this is an enduring person, right? So, so what do I mean by that? In seminary, like, I mean, I, 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 there were so many great things that uh, I love about seminary and some of the things I didn't like, right? But this illustration that one of my seminary professors gave me was, was just so helpful in terms of why tough things happen to families, like why they go through cancer or, or, or death of a spouse. It just seems horrible, right, that these trials happen to people, especially Christians, right? And it's easy to blame God for all these things, but, and yet... You see people walking out of these situations just even stronger, right? <clears throat> and so one of my professors said this. I said, well, in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, it actually talks about that God allows those trials because they want to showcase the character of these warriors in their faith, right? That, I mean, if you really read that passage, that's what it is referring to. And he said this. He goes, you know, you know he goes, class, you know, think about like when you go to a tire store, right? When you go to a tire store, they have all these like posters of, of their tires, these like what is Goodyear or uh, Michelin, like they have all these tires going through different weather conditions, right? They have these tires going like, like, like running over glass, and it's like, oh man, our tires can weather the glass and you're not gonna get punctured, or, or like oily roads, and they have the tire like, like driving through oily roads, oh, you're not gonna skid with our kinds of tires, or rain, right? They have these posters. Why do they do that? They wanna showcase the durability of their tires, right? Are they being sick and intentional? Like, what do you mean? You're going to, like, drive through glass and drive through oil? That's stupid. No, no, no. They do that because they want to showcase the durability or the character of the tire. If you actually read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 closely, that's really what's happening. And in Genesis chapter 22, that's what's happening. God knows that Abraham is going to pass this test. It isn't really a test. Like, it's not God saying, oh, I wonder... I wonder what he's going to do. No, he knows. And he is showcasing the character of Abraham and saying, this is my guy. This is my guy. You want to pass the test of God? Like, watch this guy. I'm even going to, like, command that he kills one, slays one and one son. And watch this guy in action. He's my guy. That's really what's happening in Genesis 22. And that's what you want in your life. When these trials come and God say, that's my girl. That's my guy. Man, I'm ready. Right, so so when the commands of God seem to be contradicting the uh, the promises of God, that's when I say, "Wow, okay, 
God must be wanting to showcase my character. Like, help me, God, because I don't know if I can. You see what I'm saying? So that's encouragement. That's really good encouragement. All right, now, <clears throat> let's take a look at one of these directly and just kind of use some examples. Um, for the longest time, uh, for our family, provision has been a struggle. Like, we went from, you know, te- being a, a, high, a, a junior high history teacher, wrestling coach, you know, from, you know, uh, right out of college, right, right to, you know, like 11 years. I mean, I went from making a certain salary, and then when I got out of Gilman, this is 1996, I made a whopping salary of, of 36000 After 12, uh, 11 years of investment in the, in the p- private school education, I was like, man, I've really made it, you know? I was like, man, I'm making a lot of money. I'm, I'm doing good. You know, this is what a Cornell degree gets you. All right, cool. Um, <laughs> praise God, right? And then I come to New Song, I get hired by New Song, excited, but we've always been like calling people. Like if God calls us, we wrap our, our lives around and we go, right? So we get hired by, I think Paul was already on staff and, and Gibbons was a senior pastor. He said, man, we'd love to have you, Dave. And they actually like, did you drive out or fl- you flew out? You flew out all the way to Baltimore, remember? And we drove out together, right? It was awesome. It's like, wow, that's love. Just felt love, right? And then uh, we signed all the papers and I get you know, signed up for a whopping salary of 20000 that first year. It's like, man, wow, we love God. And we had two kids, by the way, all right? And our rent, our rent, 1200 a month in Irvine. Like, you do the math, 20000 a year, like, 12, like, not much left over, right? It was like, Lord, this has got to be your calling. This is you, right? So we totally said, God, you call this, we're going to do it. So we trusted the Lord. We obeyed the command to go west, young man. We did. Command to go. The promise of God is like, I'm going to provide, and just watch me provide, right? I, I mean, economics does, I mean, 20,000, if you think that's not very much, back in 1996, it wasn't very much, believe me. I mean, it just wasn't a lot, and I was going to seminary, right? But here's what God did, like so many cool things God did in those first couple years that was so encouraging. I mean, I, I know this sounds like some of the stories I'm going to tell sound really funny and all, but it was like God saying, look, I got you, all right? I commanded you to come out here. You're here. But I kept my promise, and I'm going to provide for you, right? So, so things were a little bit tight in that you know, first year, and it's like, wow, it's like there's not much left for groceries. And I don't know how people found that, but then one day, like, we literally didn't have any money for groceries. There were like five bags of groceries in our front door. I don't even know. To this day, Helen, do we even know who did that? We have no idea, right? Or you know, we'd have some friends over, like elders of the church or something like that for dinner, and then like, you know, after they'd leave, like, there'd be an envelope. You know, it's like, wow, you know, they, like they'd leave something. But for us, the coolest one was we woke up one Sunday morning. Do you guys, uh, you remember, we used to have that green Previa van. I don't know if you remember, but we just have the, it was a beat up, you know, Previa. We, we loved it, but it was beat up. And uh, we woke up one Sunday morning, and it, you know, because we lived uh, right by Harvard Road or whatever. So we get out of our, you know, we're getting ready to go to church, new song. <clears throat> Parked the car right in front of our driveway and everything. We're like, getting ready to go. Our minivan's gone. Like, it literally is gone. It's like, hey, Helen, where'd you park the car? And she goes, in front of the house. I was not in front of the house. <laughs> and, and she goes, what are you crazy? What are you blind? I said, no, it's not in front of the house. So we both walk out there. The car's not there. Like, literally, it, was, it got stolen, right? So we called the Irvine police because they don't have anything better to do because nothing gets ever said. <laughs> so we're like, we have, some, we have something for you to do. Like, our car got stolen. Come on over. He's like, oh, my goodness. They come over, and we got all the papers. And so it's like Sunday morning. And then, uh, and then like, we get a phone call later in the afternoon, like, like I'm a four or five. He goes, oh, Mr. Che, we caught, we caught the culprit, you know, who stole your van. And we got your van, and we got it back for you, right? 
I was like, wow, you really, in, in like less than 24 hours? Yeah, we got it. I said, that's, that's so cool, right? So bring the van. Now, what I didn't tell you was that, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't have gas money. Like, it was like running on empty, like nothing in the car, right? Like no gas. But then when we got it back, we had a full tank of gas. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, we were like, praise God. <laughs> It was like the craziest provision of God. I mean, it's like, what are the chances? Like, God in his own humor, <laughs> you know, would get like, you think I can't provide? I'm going to provide for you, man. Like, I commanded you to come out here, and I gave you that promise I would provide. Like, literally, we had like hardly anything in the car. And all of a sudden, we had like, we had a full tank of gas. So we, we, we you know, we, we were good for three more days. <laughs> you know? But, it, but stuff like this started to happen, right? Because literally, like, you tell me, family of four, 20,000, can you live on 20,000? I mean, it was, it was foolish for us to, like, even think that we can do that. But we scrounged up and we made it work because we obeyed the commands of God in light of his promises and we trusted the Lord in that area. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, there was lots of disobedience in other areas. It's not like, oh my goodness, your life is so full of God's. Oh no, we made some stupid calls. We didn't. There were lots of times we didn't obey God, and and so the promises of God didn't get fulfilled. So don't you know? Those are all kind of horror stories, right? But I got to say that that we never forgot that. Even in Northern Cal, I mean, people were saying like, you know, like, wow, you're going to plant a church up up north, and. Uh, you know, and like, like people would come up to us like right when we decided to go, like we had somebody come up and say, hey, we want to, you know, we totally want to like pray for you guys and support you guys. And we're like, hey, here's a prayer letter. And, and they go, no, no, we really wanted to like, like support you. And I said, what, what do you mean? It's, no, no, like, like we know that rent up there is going to be really hard. Like we'd like to cover your first year's rent at, at, you know, GRX. I go, oh my goodness. I mean, literally, like, like you're talking about 2000, 2001 where they had just hit the internet bubble with plateauing, but still, like, like 1,500 square foot houses were still, like, I don't know, at the time it was like three, 4,000, maybe 3,500 a month, right? And that, that's, 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 that's less than what it is now. But, like, these people, the friends of ours, said, look, we want to, we, we, we talked about it. We want to cover this for the first year so you can do ministry. I mean, praise God. So I don't know where you are in terms of provision, if that's a promise that you're leaning on, but then all these commands that God's giving to you, like serve the poor, you know, minister to the widow, and take in people, you're like, oh, my, you know, I don't want to get my house and, and, and my kids contaminated. Man, no, like, like obey the command of God in light of the provision of God. And I'm telling you right now, okay, you are going to praise God. You are going to love God in the ways that, um, that he fulfills for you. Now, a couple other things here. Um, I don't know how this actually fits, but I, I just sense that this might be really helpful. Um, <clears throat> another prized possession that we might have is self, right? I mean, let's face it. Like, if it's not toys, if it's not a spouse, your most prized possession is self. I mean, that's why when people give you feedback or that's when your spouse gives you, you know, uh, feedback, it's hard to hear it. No matter how constructive it is, you get defensive, you get protective. Because your sense of self is pretty fragile, right? I mean, we're all kind of in that age. We're still kind of growing, and that core sense is still needs developing. So my guess is that if control isn't, you know, one of the main prized possessions in your life, that self is. Like, you just can't hear criticism. You can't hear anything bad about you. As a result, like, you don't want to change, right? I mean, so some other people have to say the things that your spouse has been saying, so now you can hear it, right? I mean, that's, that's what good counseling is, by the way, right? 
So I want to talk about that a little bit. How do we break, right? How do we break uh, this kind of, you know, our most prized possession of self? Because that's, we're supposed to sacrifice that. We're supposed to die to self, right? I mean, Christians understand that better than anybody. Well, you can't die to self if you're unwilling to receive feedback and you're unwilling to give feedback, fear that they might reject you, right? So, so I want to talk about that a little bit in light of the passage. How do you give feedback to somebody, right, that's going to help them without fearing rejection? Because if you fear self, right, you're, you're not going to fear rejection. You say nothing, and you see all these things that, that your, your friends are struggling with, but you say nothing because you fear rejection because your sense of self is what you prize. And you can't really receive feedback, right? You can't receive feedback because it hurts too much. Your sense of self is too important to you. Like, you don't want to hear anything negative, right? So let's ask the first question. How do you give feedback without destroying people, without protecting yourself so much, right? How do you give feedback without fearing rejection, all right? And here's a principle that's really, I think, will be helpful for us. When you provide feedback for any, somebody that you see that you love, right? And even though your sense of self is fragile, you want to do it with this principle, to be absolutely respectful, absolutely candid, okay? Absolutely respectful and be absolutely candid. This is a way that you can provide feedback without fearing rejection, okay? So what do I mean by this? <clears throat> um, so, so here's a CEO, well-respected CEO, CEO in a startup, lots of great employees, right, that he's hired, they've applied, like they've been reading about this guy and they feel like, wow, you know, what an honor to be working for this guy. But over time, as they're kind of raising funds and they're making all this money, you know, the CEO has just become a little bit, um, you know, lukewarm about his diligence, you know, where he used to come like 30 minutes before the board meetings. Now he's like barely making it to the meeting. And, and where he was like, like really prepared for the meetings, he was no longer as prepared, right? So all these subordinates and direct reports like, man, like how do we, how do we tell this person um, that like, like, like things are lax, you know, like, like the standards have gone down and, and you know, we want to change, but how do we do it without, without getting fired, right, without fearing rejection? And here's how these direct report guys or gals did it. They said, um, in the valley, this is Silicon Valley, in the valley, there's, there's no one who's a better leader than you, absolutely respectful. Like, like we joined this company because we saw your track record. You're innovative, you're collaborative, and you have a winning record. Like, I, your track record's awesome. Like, we really, that's why we signed up to be part of this company. But as of late, these board meetings haven't been very organized. You've come late, and it makes us feel like that maybe you don't take us as seriously, or we're not that important, or you don't care about the company anymore. We know that's not your intent, but that's how we feel. But there's nobody we'd rather work for than you. You've shown it in your, your track record. You've shown it in the way that you do business. We, we see it in your life. But this is a concern to us, right? So absolutely respectful, absolutely candid, right? Like, because I think sometimes we get, we, we, when we have to have these conversations, we get, like, really, really respectful, but we don't really say what we need to say, right? We're not candid, or we're really candid, and we absolutely destroy them because we're not respectful, right? So if you want to, you know, think about your prized possession as how do I offer that to the Lord as you serve other people, right, in this area is how do I provide feedback for others without feeling rejected? I would say be absolutely uh, respectful and absolutely candid, and that will also help develop a, a healthy sense of self. Okay, 
How do, you, how do you receive feedback? And this is the one that, that I, I think has been so helpful for our community back home and even for our marriage and, and our home. Um, we tend to think that when, when we receive feedback, right, or even if we invite feedback, and this is a practice I, I started to do with leaders who maybe I wasn't in a good relationship with or when I was at GRX, several staff left, and I thought we were on good terms, um, but, but I wasn't sure, so I'd kind of go back. And, th- and this is, by the way, just, 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 just really trying to work on that core self, right? And so one of the questions that I would ask in these kind of return visits with these staff that have left would be like, um, hey, if you knew I wouldn't be defensive, like what would you say to me, right? Number one. And number two, how could I love you better, right, while you were on staff, right? And I, I would put, like with this particular staff, I, I put uh, in parentheses number 10, like how could I have loved you better, right? And it turns out, for this just sidebar, in that example, like we met at Starbucks and, and like I wanted to see 10 and we spent three hours going with the first two, it was really, it was good learning experience. It was hard, you know, taking all that. It was really hard to get their feedback. But anyway, um, how, how do you do that? Like, like, like you want to get that feedback. So now how do we receive it? So, so um, I'll just use a fun example, okay? So let's say, you know, somebody wants to give me feedback about the way I dress. I mean, Sam was making comments about how, like, man, dude, you're like, you don't dress any different than when you were, like, you know, back in, back in 2001 when you used to be at news, so you still have your collar shirt, you still have your, you know, khaki shorts, like, it was cool, you know? But let's say, let's say that as, as Sam or anybody's giving me feedback about the way I dress, dude, like, man, you don't match, like, your, 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 your sandals are a different color, your belts are different, let's just say, like, you know, they come at me, and they give you, like, this direct feedback, right? So there's several ways I can respond to that feedback. There's actually three. Number one, I can get super defensive. I said, I said, what? Well, you don't think I match? You know, I, I've seen the way you dress. You don't match, man. And so I go after you. Like, I just say, hey, you don't think I match? Oh, oh, man, I've seen the way you dress. You're no fashion, whatever. Boom, boom. And I start cutting you up. I, I think of all the ways that you don't match. So that's my first way I can respond to feedback. The second way might be like, oh, my goodness, look at me. I'm an idiot. Like, I start beating myself up, right? Because, like, right, you know, you're better than this. Right? Because I feel bad now that I've, I haven't dressed properly. But there's actually a third response. And this is, this is where I, I think it's really helpful. It's a non-response. When somebody gives you feedback or apparent criticism, because you don't know. Like, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. You don't have to say anything. You can say, all right, all right let me get back to you. I'm not sure. Like, I'm kind of stunned by that comment. So I was like, so let, me, let me kind of pull back. So let's say a couple days goes by. And sure enough, I'm, I'm looking at my attire. I'm checking in with Helen. Like, what do you think? Like, like do I not match? And, and she might be like, hello. We've been telling you that for 20 years now. And your kids have been telling you. I've been telling you. I was like, wow. You know, I was like, wait, what am I? So now I can go back to Sam. I said, Sam, dude, thank you. Like, you actually did me a favor. You actually did me a favor. You're right. I don't match. That's so like, wow. I need to hear that. Thank you. But let's say after a couple of days, I go back to Helen. And she says, What? person's crazy, man. I dress you, man. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know the way. Like, you don't, I don't let you walk out that door without you matching. Like, who is this guy that's giving you that hard time? Or my kid's like, Dad, I love what you got. I was like, you know, I'm feeling pretty affirmed. I'm feeling pretty good. So I go back to Sam. I said, Sam, hey, thanks, bro, but I think I'm all right. Right? But that third response is critical. It's a non-response, and I can hear it, and I don't have to respond. Now, why am I bringing this up? I think receiving feedback 
in your marriage, particularly, is the hardest thing in the world. It just feels like a personal attack, doesn't it? It's just like, you just really, you want to kill them. It's like, how dare you? You know, you want to go beat them up or like, or you beat yourself up and you just get depressed. What if that third response is the godly response to like, okay, you know, maybe I didn't like hearing it at first, but then you go back and you talk to the Lord and you receive like, God, what's going on here? Like, is this true? <laughs> is this really true? And then now you get to have a really, really good conversation with the person that apparently, you know, gave you some feedback that you didn't think was that constructive. I, I think that would just, like, like, help us so much as a body. Because I, I tell people, I, I think we're like one coaching tip away from bettering our lives or ruining our lives. I really believe that. I really think that advice, good advice, is just so important. But because of this poor sense of self, right, because it's our prized possession... I think we have a hard time with that. And so I want to encourage us as we come to a close here, and we're going to do discussion questions a little bit, for us to kind of like, like let that sit there a little bit. It's like, hmm, let me, let me, let me give me a non-response, right, to that feedback. It's like, hmm, let me think about that. Maybe that's why my, my most prized possession right now isn't growing. Like, I should be able to give that up for the Lord so that he can work in my life. If my pr- most prized possession is self and control, all these things all about self, which is by the, the biggest one, Maybe I need to give that to the Lord and let him redeem that and realizing that, you know, the promises of God are true. I can obey these commands and sacrifice myself and take care of other people, love other people, and I'm going to trust that God's going to provide, right? And so these are some of practical ways that we can do that. All right, let's go, let's go to the Lord prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we shared a lot tonight, and we started with Abraham and, and how he was challenged to sacrifice his one and only son. And And all of us in this room, if we're really honest with ourselves, we have a metaphorical one and only son. That may be a person. It may be a thing. It may be a reputation that we have or we don't have. It may be approval. It may be control. It could be any of the above. God, I know that you know that. And we want to lay these things on your your throne of grace right now for, for you to examine and for our hearts to be open and to really take that in. Because we want to be the kinds of people that when you ask us to do something, when you command us to do something, that we wrap our lives around that and we actually do it. And that we lean on your promises and we trust in your promises. Even though if the commands and the promises seem to contradict one another, we're going to obey your commands in light of the promises that you've laid out. So may we trust in your provision. May we trust in your comfort. May we trust in your presence And all the things that you have said in scripture to be true. So that when we obey and we follow through, that you could look at our lives and say, well done, good and faithful servant. So God, we give you our most prized possession, whatever they may be. And that you would just take away the dross and the the things that are temporal, the things that are full of anxiety and, and worry and panic. God, you would just take those things. And in turn, that that we could be like Abraham, that you could look at us and say, now I know, now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you prize me above anything else. God, help us to be that kind of church, full of leaders, full of people that are willing to obey you in light of the promises, to literally relinquish our most prized possession, to have a willingness to do that so that you can say to us, 
Now I know that you love me above all else. Now I know that you love me, that you fear me above all else. And may that be so with Crossway Church. In Jesus' name, amen.